This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. In today's episode, I want to discuss a core aspect of the arrogantly named modern portfolio theory. The aspect I want to talk about is rebalancing. Before I get started, I want to make a short request. Today, if you haven't already, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating and review. I would really appreciate it because your feedback and your ratings and reviews help me to grow the podcast audience to find and help more people. Thank you for your support. So let's dive into rebalancing. So why am I talking about rebalancing today? Well, it is the assertion that I want to make that rebalancing kills compounding. And as we dive into this, I'm going to provide you with an example that discusses it, but I'm going to begin by discussing in general what modern portfolio theory is, and we can then use that as a means of discussing rebalancing. So according to Investopedia, modern portfolio theory is, quote, or According to Investopedia, quote, modern portfolio theory argues that an investment's risk and return characteristics should not be viewed alone, but should be evaluated by how the investment affects the overall portfolio's risk and return, end quote. Another quote is that, quote, an individual investment's return is less important than how the investment behaves in the context of the entire portfolio, end quote. So what do we have here? In modern portfolio theory, which is basically the mainstream understanding of what investments are today, how you should be investing your assets, how you should allocate money between one asset and another, what stocks to buy, what bonds to buy, um, how ETFs are built, what your financial advisor is going to use to build your investment portfolio, all is based on this modern portfolio theory. But what modern portfolio theory is saying is that you can't simply make investments based upon what those investments risks are and what their return is for that investment alone, but you have to look at the portfolio as a whole. Now, that that's fair. If we think about what I talked about in the last episode, episode 63, I said your portfolio should reflect your investing strategy. And that certain investments fit better in different portfolios than others. 
And really the key point was is that in a diversified portfolio, you're more likely to be able to leverage risk and return between different investments and you don't have to look at them individually. But in a concentrated portfolio, you have to be very focused on individual risk and return characteristics for each and every investment. So what you'll see already is that modern portfolio theory aligns very clearly and closer to the side of diversified portfolio construction. And that's very much true. Diversification is one of the key proponents of modern portfolio theory. But another key component is rebalancing. And the reason for this is that when modern portfolio theory talks about evaluating investments based upon their risk and return in relation to the portfolio, well, return is obvious. That's how much money that investment is earning. But risk is less obvious. When modern portfolio portfolio theory describes risk, their return, they are discussing volatility. And the volatility of the individual investments is the change in price of that investment compared to what the expectation is compared to, say, a baseline of the S&P 500. So more volatile investments are going to be considered riskier and less volatile investments are going to be considered less risky. And that's all quantified in the formula that is used to calculate beta. Beta and volatility are used interchangeably, and I've talked about this in an episode before. And all of that discussion was in episode 36 titled, What is Risk? Price Risk, Volatility, and Beta, discussing various types of investing risk. If you want to listen more on my thoughts on beta and volatility, listen to episode 36 of this podcast. But when we're discussing this, I really want to dive into how beta and how volatility are being used in terms of these overall portfolios. The general idea of this theory is that a modern investor, and here I'm using modern in the same term they are, which is very ironically in the sense that just because it's a new theory makes it better. Um, I certainly don't believe that, but that is the general take for those that have named this modern portfolio theory. But the idea is that as prices between investments change, when the price of one investment goes up, you can sell it and buy more of an investment that has gone down in price. And if you do this repeatedly over time, this is the process of rebalancing. And it allows you to increase the returns of the overall portfolio more than the returns of the individual investments would have provided. That's the theory. But what I want to discuss today is why this theory doesn't work and where this theory falls apart. This theory can work if every investment in the portfolio has identical return characteristics, identical return expectations. Obviously, not every investment is going to have the same returns at the end of the day. But if you're establishing a portfolio, and here I'm talking about, let's say, if you establish a portfolio of stocks, you might think that each of the stocks that you put in your portfolio are trying to exceed your return threshold. So if I say my return threshold is 10% per year, then I'm only going to buy stocks that I think can earn at least 10% a year. Now, some I might be a little more confident in, some I might be a little less confident in, but that's the target rate of return that I'm seeking in the stocks. 
So if I were to rebalance between those, then that might work because I'm saying, okay, I'm going to take from one stock that's expected to earn 10% and maybe shift it into another stock that's expected to earn 10%. But it breaks down because the whole basis of value investing is that the price of your stocks matter. So if when I bought two companies and they were both $100 per share, if at $100 per share, I thought they were going to return 10% and one went up to $120 per share and the other one went down to $80 per share, then the one at $80 per share now has a higher expected rate of return than the one at $120 per share. Now, that's, of course, what rebalancing is trying to capture. It's trying to say, hey, the one that's gone up in price is going to return less in the future than the one that's gone down in price. And so by selling off the one that's gone up and buying more of the one that's gone down, it can benefit the portfolio overall. There's a problem, though. The entire basis of this definition is what I quoted before, that the individual investment's return is less important than how it's behaving with regards to the rest of the portfolio. And that is simply not true. The return of your individual investments drive the return of your portfolio. It is absolutely critical that you're always investing in companies or assets that have high potential return so that your portfolio has a high potential return. It's not possible to simply say that I'm going to have a whole portfolio of assets that's returning 5% per year, and then by simply diversifying and rebalancing, I can get a 10% annual return. It's simply not going to work in the long term because the math doesn't make sense. Likewise, if you are investing in a company that has a 12% annual return that its compounding rate is over the long term, and you sell that company to buy an asset that's returning 8% per year over the long term, that rebalancing is only going to harm your portfolio. You're taking money from a high-returning asset and you're investing in a low-returning asset. This can apply to stocks trading into other stocks, and it can apply from stocks trading into bonds or bonds into stocks, depending upon which asset class has the highest rate of return. When you take money away from your highest rate of return assets and you put it in lower-returning assets, you are harming the eventual return characteristics of your portfolio. You will receive less money in the long term when you do this. Now, mainstream theorists like to kind of hand wave this distinction away and say, oh, well, you might have higher risk adjusted returns. Now, you're not here in the room with me, but I'm putting those fake quotation marks on that term risk adjusted returns. Well, obviously, you'd like higher returns with low risk. The only thing that you can actually spend is absolute return. You can only spend the money that you actually receive, the money that you actually get in return. So if your risk-adjusted return is an absolute return of 9%, but your previous return would have been 10%, you're worse off. Now, the other reason that this is used is because there, the only way this can be calculated is to have some quantitative quantifiable measure of risk. And here, this is what beta is. Volatility is the quantifiable measure for risk. Now, I would argue that you can't quantify risk. 
There's no single number that you can use to quantify the risks and all dozens and dozens and dozens of various risks that go into each and every investment you make. These are qualitative risks. You can describe them, you can mitigate them, you can find companies with lower risks than others, but you can't simply put a number on the risk of a company's chance of bankruptcy. You can't simply put a number on the risk that a company is going to have higher competition in a year versus higher competition in two years. You can't put a number on the fact that, oh, well, the stock price moves slightly more often up and down than this other company, therefore it's more risky. When you put a number on something, it's giving you false precision, and the theorists need that. When you're writing these fancy theories that allow you to make investments and make formulas that tell you things about how you can manage between these different investments, those theories are simply allowing you to feel more comfortable than you actually are because the numbers there are fake. Now, the math behind it is really fancy and nice, but math can be used to lie. Statistics can be used to lie, and all you're doing is you're creating this veal of understanding that it makes you feel like you have a greater understanding than what you have. This is one reason that some people in the value investing community don't like using price targets or intrinsic value numbers as discrete numbers. For instance, if you say that the intrinsic value of Apple stock is $220 per share, that's very specific and discrete. It would be much more accurate to understand that to say something along the lines, well, I believe that Apple stock is worth somewhere between $200 and $240 per share based upon the different probabilities of future outcomes. This range allows you to indicate that there's uncertainty in the numbers. There's uncertainty in forecasting the future and that to give a specific number would hand wave away all the uncertainty involved in investing. Now, I like to use discrete numbers because it's showing I can clearly state my assumptions and I can clearly know what's going in that number. And I like to have those and just put a lot of margin of safety on that number. But some people don't. The key point is to understand that investing is uncertainty. If you're going to invest money, you are investing in a realm of uncertainty. So if you focus too much on trying to define these numbers and make a discrete characteristic of what risk is and what return is, you're liable to make mistakes. But most likely, you're liable to be overconfident in your investments if you're not thinking probabilistically and you're not thinking about uncertainty. So that tangent went a little bit longer than I wanted to go into, but I want to dive now and move away from a little bit of the theory, and let's talk about an example. Because I really want to push in this idea that rebalancing can kill compounding. And I think the easiest way to do this is to use the doubling penny example. So the doubling penny example is a famous example on the power of compound interest. It basically goes like this. Would you rather have a million dollars or would you have rather have a penny that doubles in value every day for a month? And the key point here is it's trying to show that if you invest money over time, compounding can be wondrous. And the 
face of it goes like this. On day zero, you initially have a penny. And the first day, it doubles to two cents. The second day, it doubles again to four cents. The third day, it doubles again to eight cents. Well, at the end of a week, you only have a dollar and 28 cents. So after seven days, you're sitting there with a dollar and 28 cents if you chose the doubling penny. But the other person is sitting there with the million dollars because they chose the million dollars. Well, right now, it doesn't feel like you made the right choice by choosing the route of compounding. But the interesting thing is, and now, of course, our example is using a compounding rate of 100% per day, is it continues to feel this way for a long period of time. If you go to two weeks, you're at day 14, and you're at $163.84, while the other person stills at a million dollars. It feels like you're losing, even though you're almost halfway through the month. And here for a month, I'm using 31 days. But let's go another week. And so your $163 has now grown into $20,971.52. This starts to feel better. You're getting a lot closer. But the key point is, even at day 25, you're at $335,544. So, even at day 25, you're over 80% of the way, well, my math might be bad here, but let's say 75% of the way through the month, and yet, you're still behind the person that chose a million dollars. But then 335,000 grows to 671,000 on 26. On day 27, it grows to 1.3 million. On day 28, it grows to 2.6 million. On day 29, 5.3 million. Day 30, 10.7 million. And day 31, 21.4 million. So over the course of 31 days of doubling, and basically 31 doubling in total, you went from a penny to $21.4 million. So it shows the power of compounding because you're able to compound if you have a high enough compounding rate and a long enough period of time, you can think about how much money you're able to gain. And the idea behind this example is to show, okay, our compounding rate's 100%. It really just helps you expand on what this could be. Obviously, better compounding rates to think about are 6%, 8%, 10%, 12%, that sort of range, and to think about that as an annualized rate of return. But it's using days to show like a 30 or 31-day period is roughly equivalent to what some people think of like 30 years of investing time frame. So the point is, when you have the doubling penny, It's showing the power of compound interest because what you do is when the money doubles, you're able to still earn interest on that doubled amount. So your interest is earning interest. You're not simply getting a penny each day. Otherwise, at the end of the period, you'd only have 32 pennies. Instead, every penny you earn is able to earn more pennies. And every dollar you earn is able to more earn more dollars. That's the power of compounding, that your interest earns money on its interest. So what does rebalancing do? And here I've expanded the example to include bonds. So you have a doubling penny and you have bonds. So in this example, what I'm going to do is talk about what happens if we split this portfolio. So the first part of modern portfolio theory is this idea that you have different asset classes with different return and volatility characteristics. 
So here we're going to have one asset class, which is your doubling penny, and it has an it has a daily compounding rate of 100%. Meanwhile, you have a bond, which has a daily compounding rate of 5%. And so we're going to start again with one penny, and we're going to split that penny in half. So on day zero, you have half a cent, um, or half a penny, $0.005 in the doubling penny asset class. And you're going to have half a cent in the bond asset class. So you're going to have $0.005 in the bond. Now, let's go forward again. On day one, your penny is now a full penny. Instead of being half a penny, it's now a full penny. And so you have one cent on the penny category, but you're still at the same value, basically, for the bond. Now, we're going to skip ahead to day 15. Now, on day 15, your penny has now grown to $163.84. Before, it took you 14 days to reach this category. And now, since you put half as much money in, it took towards day 15. But the bond money that you put in has only grown to a full penny. It's taken two weeks to reach a full penny in value and to double once for the bond category. Now, this isn't a big deal because you still have the doubling penny in your asset class. We'll skip forward again to day 25. Now, in day 25, you're at $167,000 on the doubling penny asset class, but only 1.7 cents in the bond asset class. And so if we take this all the way to day 31, instead of $21.4 million dollars, in total, you now have $10.7 million on the penny value and 2.3 cents in the bond category. So in total, your portfolio value is $10.7 million. Now, this is not a disaster because what's happened is you invested 50% in your portfolio was the penny to start and 50% of your portfolio was the bond to start. But over time, that portfolio allocation has changed because you allowed the money in the penny to compound over time. So by the end of the 31 days, 99.9% of your portfolio is in the doubling penny asset class and less than 1% of your portfolio is in the bond class. So this is equivalent to thinking about stocks and bonds. If you were to have like a 60-40 portfolio, you could have 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds. Modern portfolio theory tells you that you should rebalance each year to always keep it 60% equities and 40% bonds. This example is trying to show that if you allow the equities to simply compound, then over time, the equities would grow to 99% of your portfolio while the bonds would drop to 1% of your portfolio because you're not rebalancing. So, all I've shown is that not rebalancing will allow compounding to continue. It's Even though it might be a lower portfolio value, it's still a highly successful portfolio. You still have more than the million dollars in your example. You still chose the value of compounding, even though you chose to diversify initially. Now, what happens if we move from simply a diversified portfolio to a diversified and rebalanced portfolio. So here gets a little bit more complicated and it requires some 
rebalancing after each day. So what we're going to do is we keep the same categories. We have our equity category, which is the doubling penny, and we have the bond category, which is our 5% earning bond. Now, what I'm going to do is the same thing as in, as in the second example. I'm going to put 50% of my portfolio in the doubling penny category and 50% of my portfolio in the bond category. Now, each day, the bond value will earn 5%, and each day, the equity or penny value will earn 100%. And after the day is over, I'll total up the earnings, combine it all together, and I'm going to rebalance so that the end of each day, I again have a 50% portfolio mix. So this would be like how when you rebalance at the end of each year between equities and bonds, you're rematching the portfolio towards whatever your target allocation is. So here I'm talking about 50-50. There's other examples of 60-40 portfolios. You could have a 90-10 portfolio. Whatever type of rebalanced portfolio, it fits the category. This is just an allegory. So what happens if we do this? Well, on day zero, our penny is going to earn, or, or on day zero, what we're going to do is your penny is going to earn twice its value, which is that half penny multiplying again into a penny. The bond's going to earn the 0 0.005 and that 5% amount. So at the end of the day, you have over a 50% gain because you've averaged out this 100% gain with the 5% with gain. And you're going to have 1.53 pennies. But instead of having one full penny in the equity category, you now only have 0.76 pennies in the equity category because you had to divide it by two and you rebalanced it. So let's again fast forward to day 15 to see how this compares. On day 15, you only have a total of $5.61. For comparison, in the base case, you had $327 and in the diversified but not rebalanced case, you had $164. So this is a pretty devastating amount. And the reason is, is that at the end of day 15, or at day 15, you have $2.81 in your equities category and $2.81 in your bonds category. So each time, again, let's think about what happens on day 15. Your equities will earn $2.81, but your bonds are only ordering, earning, earning 14 cents. So what happens is your money goes up. You go from $5.61 to $8.56. But instead of allowing the money that's compounding quickly to remain in the fast compounding asset, you take it away and you put it in the low compounding asset. And the result is for day 16, you only have $4.28 to be able to have that doubling amount. So let's accelerate again to day 25, where you have a total of $381.72. That's $190 in the doubling category and $190 in the bond category. But for comparison, on day 25, you were already at $335,000 in your base case. Or $167,000 in, in the diversified case, but non-rebalanced. And this is when it really starts to hit you. Because in one case, you're talking about having six figures. And in, and in our current case that has rebalancing, you're still in the three-figure category. So we'll accelerate all the way to the end of our month on day 31. What is the result? The result is an ending portfolio value of $7,322. It's still impressive when you think about starting at a penny, 
but it's devastating when you compare to the $21.4 million of your base case, your $10.7 million of your diversified but not rebalanced case. The only difference between these two scenarios is not the fact that you have a diversified portfolio. The difference is that you're taking money from assets that are compounding quickly and you're putting it into assets that are compounding slowly. Would you rather have the portfolio of $10.7 million or would you rather have the portfolio of $7,000? That's my question for you today. And that's what I hope you consider. This is my modified doubling penny example that I hope will be beneficial to you as a way of thinking about the effects of rebalancing in your portfolio. Now, it still might be right for you to rebalance in your portfolio, but you need to understand why you're doing it and you need to make sure that you're rebalancing in the right way. It is a mistake to rebalance from an investment with high return potential and to move that money into an investment with low return potential. If you're going to sell an investment that is up for that has gone up for one that has gone down, you should better be confident that the lower cost investment actually offers a better return. So if you're rebalancing between individual stocks, this is possible. But if you're rebalancing between stocks that are compounding at a high rate, you're selling those stocks and you're putting it into bonds that are compounding at a low rate, your portfolio at the end of the day, sorry, not at the end of the day, your portfolio at the end of your investment lifetime is highly likely to be lower in value than it would have otherwise been. Don't trade 10% return expectation stocks for 2% return expectation bonds. Betting on future volatility simply allows you to re- allowing you to rebalance back again is gambling, not investing. The key point is when you're making that decision, the decision that modern portfolio theory tells you is good, it's assuming that stocks and bonds are moving against each other. When stocks go up, bonds go down. When bonds go up, stocks go down. You've probably heard this before. I'm not the first person to say this. This is a general idea that this theory is based upon, that they are inversely correlated. The problem is, is that's not always true. There are times where stocks go up together with bonds. There's times that stocks and bonds go down together as well. If you have bet your portfolio on this idea that they're going to move out, out of sync with each other, You're betting on the will of other investors making a worse decision than you. This is simply the greater fool theory in practice, but it's accepted because so many people have accepted it. Just because the investing norm is out there doesn't mean it's true, and you need to clearly think about what you're doing. If you buy a bond that has a 2% yield, you're locking in a 2% yield. That is what you've done. It is inherently what you're doing. You can't simply buy a 2% yielding bond or a negative yielding bond and think, oh, this is a good idea because I might be able to sell it to someone in the future for more money. That's gambling. That's speculating. That's not investing. There's no strong underlying basis for your return besides the bond yield. So if you buy a 2% yielding bond, you should expect and be comfortable with and happy with a 2% rate of return. If you're not 
comfortable and happy with a 2% rate of return, you should probably never buy a 2% yielding bond. Because all you're doing is gambling. You're speculating. Now, that works for some people. Everyone has a different return expectation and everyone has different return needs. For those who have already made their money, let's think about retirees, let's think about rich people that are want to simply retire on their bonds. If you have $10 million and it can make sense for you to buy 2% yielding bonds. If you put in a $10 million portfolio, you buy 2% bonds, that's $200,000 a year that you get to live on, especially if they're municipal bonds that are tax-free for the federal government. You could have a tax-free $200,000 of income that you can spend each and every year during your retirement. I'm guessing that most of my listeners, that's not the case. So I want you to really think about what you're doing, and always question the assumptions that underlie the strategies that you've been communicated. You need to understand what is causing your performance. Is it based upon the actual asset? Or is it based upon selling that asset to a greater fool down the road? I don't want it to seem like I'm telling you what to do. Each person needs to clearly think and understand about their own performance expectations. Some people are going to have different expectations than others. Your situation is unique, and I cannot give you advice on what you need to do yourself. All I can do is hopefully open you up to understanding what it means to rebalance and make sure that when you do rebalance, you're doing it for the right reasons and into the right assets. In summary, rebalancing is an often mentioned tactic utilized in modern portfolios, but seldom is it examined from first principles. The act of rebalancing can be useful to offset volatility amongst assets within similar return profiles. However, rebalancing between assets that differ in potential returns can lead to disaster. Compounding requires the ability to earn interest upon your interest. If you rebalance away from the compounding asset, then you will counteract the powerful effects of compound interest. The full show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at diyinvesting.org episode 64. Finally, this is a listener-supported podcast. If you've gained value from today's content, please consider supporting the show financially as a patron. You can become a patron at diyinvesting.org p-a-t-r-o-n. Your financial support is what allows me to continue creating this free investment content without any advertisements. Please consider giving this podcast a rating and review. Your ratings and reviews help me to grow the podcast audience. And right now I have a very low number of ratings and reviews compared to the size of my audience. Please just take a few moments to leave a five-star rating and review for this podcast. I would really appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor.
The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.